Hey everybody, welcome back to the Menchwarmers. Uh, unfortunately, we are in a no sports uh, environment at the moment due to the coronavirus, but we have a sports podcast for you nevertheless. Hey Gabe, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. The show must go on and yeah. we are uh, loyal to our audience. We must entertain you. So here we are. But as we're back, sort of doing this podcast from one home to another, uh, Jamie has some big news uh, he missed from yeah, that's he right. missed last week's episode. I missed uh, last week's episode. Gabe, where you, you very ably interviewed Ethan Zahn of Survivor fame uh, because my daughter was being born uh, three weeks ago today, actually. So very exciting news for, for our family, uh, and we'll have the, you know, the newest, littlest uh, member of the Menchwarmers. Uh, we'll, we'll have to have her on the pod as soon as, soon as she starts vocalizing. Absolutely. I'm very curious to hear her take on the Sage Rosenfels versus Jay Fiedler <laughs> debate. You know, uh, I, well, I, I have to, uh, I guess, you know, you're supposed to talk to babies, right? Like, so I think I'm getting my, my podcast training in, I'm just speaking to her, but there's nothing, there's nothing to, to test it out on because there's so little going on in the sports world, unfortunately. Uh, obviously, some of your bits. Yeah, exactly. As I'm sure people can hear, you know, we're not in the same room. Obviously, we are both self-quarantining and we're taping this from our from our own homes over the phone. Uh, but that's OK. We found a way to make it work and, uh, you know, doing our best to, to put out something, even though the coronavirus has robbed us of our beloved sports. And uh, one one thing that's very good about sort of a silver lining with no sports on is that a lot of the uh, people we'd like to have on the podcast aren't necessarily too busy. Yeah, so we have it. a very special guest uh, on today's show. 12-year NFL veteran Sage Rosenfels joins us in a few minutes. Yeah, Sage was a, uh, a quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, the Houston Texans, the Minnesota Vikings, among other teams. Uh, he had, a, as you said, a 12-year NFL career, a really long career, and, and has now had a had a significant post-playing career in sports media. Uh, he, you know, he was very gracious to join us and, you know, also from quarantine. And we conducted the interview over phone earlier today with Sage. Um, and he's, it was, and he was, a, he's a, it's a very, very good chat. He's a really nice and interesting guy. Talked about everything from uh, gardening and salads to uh, his playing career to sort of how he feels responsible as a Jewish person to be a Jewish athlete and how he got on that, that path of a uh, notable Jewish person, why he wears the number 18 yeah. and he uh, still identifies with the number 18. Um, and uh, talking to him, he gives us his thoughts on the current quarantine and COVID situation in the United States, which was very good perspective to give by, uh, to get from a media figure and someone of uh, some notoriety. Definitely. He had some interesting thoughts about leadership and how we've seen that, uh, play out during the during the crisis and his his experience as a leader in sports and, and seeing uh you know great coaches that he played for like nick saban and and their leadership styles as well so uh with you know without any further ado let's let's go right to our interview with sage rosenfels yeah nice to meet you thanks for being on welcome where are where are all of you located uh so we're um, all in toronto uh canada are you where where are you at right now I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, the dead center of America. Ah, wow. Wow. Try to get as you... far away from every other part of America as possible. <laughs> uh, if that's a long story, we're not going to get that today. But I did grow up in the Midwest. <laughs> I grew up in eastern Iowa, about five hours away. And uh, you... ended up here at the, end of my, at the end of my career. I'm guessing that eastern Iowa wasn't the biggest Jewish community you were a part of. 
Uh, biggest, it wasn't the biggest as in uh, there were two families in my hometown that I guess considered themselves Jewish. Uh, there was the Rosenbergs and the Rosenfelds. A uh, town of 6,000 people. I, I actually grew up in a town of three, outside of uh, a town of 300, which is where I went to elementary school before transferring in middle school. So very small town, America. Uh, you know, my dad was from Chicago, grew up in the south side, then the north side. Uh, he is 98% Ashkenazi Jew and uh, met my mother, uh, taking a summer class at the University of Iowa, fell in love, got married, moved around the country, were in Chicago at the time. And then ended up uh, moving to in my mom's hometown because they wanted to sort of raise their kids uh, on 10 acres in, in the country and have a garden and sort of live off the land. And uh, so sort of raised by hippies, but my dad uh, is you know nearly 100% Jewish. So did you grow up sort of like that farming lifestyle? I wouldn't call it farming, no. Uh, you know, 10 acres isn't much of a farm, but we had a full acre garden. And oh, wow. uh, I'm talking just tons and tons of tomatoes and lettuces. So every night, you know, it was like go out and, and pick some salad. And I just, you know, we would eat salad every single day. Uh, we, we raised 50 of our own, our own chickens, which we would then slaughter uh, and, and freeze in this deep freezer uh, in, in, uh, in the basement. And, you know, during the winter, my mom would occasionally just pop a chicken out and saw it. And that was, we sort of, again, we sort of uh, lived off of uh, what we produced in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and um, yeah, so I guess they're very uh, sort of a family, you know, uh, serve our own family type of farm. Uh, we, of course, went to the grocery store a lot, uh, just like everybody else. But, you know, we didn't get the sugary cereals. We didn't get the, um, the uh, you know, Lucky Charms and all those types of things. My mom used to grind her own wheat to make wow. a, a, the flour for the homemade bread that she would make um, until I think one time she just realized that buying bread at the store for, you know, $2 is probably a lot better deal uh, than all the work it takes to do it the old fashioned way. So yeah, my, my parents were definitely raised very, uh, very uh, an unusual way. I was raised an unusual way by my parents. And I think my brothers and sisters would all agree, agree that we're extremely thankful for that. Right. So, so it's just to give our uh, listeners a little bit of background here, uh, you are, of course, a, a former quarterback in the NFL, 12-year NFL career. Uh, before that, you had a, a, a few years at Iowa State as a Cyclone. Um, since, since your retirement in 2012, you've gone on to do uh, media and other uh, engagement with the NFL. Uh, anything else you want to fill in here in terms of just general career highlights, things like that? Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm from a small town. I got one scholarship offered to Iowa State. Uh, I was a four-string quarterback and then a second string for a couple of years, and I finally won the job my junior year. Uh, our senior year had the best record in school history still to this day, and uh, and I was, I think, the big, the biggest benefactor of that of that whole football team and got drafted in the NFL in the fourth round and spent 12 years bouncing around the league from Washington to Miami to Houston to the Vikings to the Giants and back to Miami for a cup of coffee and to finish my career with the Minnesota Vikings. And now I live in Omaha, Nebraska. So sort of made that journey, played with a lot of different players and coaches and, and coaches that have really moved up in the world. From when I first saw Kyle Shanahan as like a wide receivers coach or Matt LaFleur as a quality control. Now those guys obviously are, are pretty successful young head coaches in the NFL. 
So I definitely had a, a journey and then, and then got to play for some, you know, sort of legendary coaches, guys like Marty Schottenheimer and uh, right. um, Nick Saban uh, and Tom Coughlin and you know, Gary Kubiak. And just, uh, it was really lucky, of course, with all those teammates, all those sort of great relationships, but, you know, maybe short-term friendships or whatever, you know, guys that you, you're your teammates for a year or two years or three years. And then, you know, some of them sort of continue to be friends uh, for the rest of your life. So, yeah, quite the interesting experience. And, you know, I, I guess a long ways from growing up in a, uh, outside of a town of 300. And did, when you were in college, did you expect to make the NFL? No, I and I, when I was in high school, I wasn't expecting to uh, play, you know, Division One college sports. Uh, I, so I, was, I was a multi-sport athlete. I actually, my senior year, I lettered in five sports. Wow. Um, I was all state. I was all state in football, but as a defensive back, I was a second team all state basketball player two years. Spring, I played tennis, which was really probably one of my favorite sports. Uh, I was number one player most of the time. Didn't make it to state my senior. Never made the state though. Uh, track my senior, year, I went out for track and tennis the same time in the spring, and I went to state and track in a couple events and some relays. And then baseball, we have a four season Iowa. Uh, where mm-hmm. I was all state in baseball a couple of times. And so, yeah, multi-sport athlete and got a football scholarship offer uh, in the middle of basketball season, my, my senior year uh, in early December, mid-December, and I took it. And it was the only scholarship I was offered at Division One level. And, of course, uh, you know, somehow worked my way into a, a decent quarterback and ended up having that career. Well, it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, I feel like these days we, we hear more and more about people needing to specialize at an early age. So I feel like the the era of the five-sport athlete, high school athlete, is probably behind us. I mean, especially the, you know, baseball, baseball basketball, and football all, are all huge commitments in terms of being a team yeah, sport the, and well, fo- all that. Fo- fo- football's interesting is, you know, I, I think one of the best ways to prepare to be a great football player is to play other sports. You know, if you're a, if you want to be a great quarterback, you could probably play baseball. Uh, running track is great for everybody. Um, you know, tennis is just a great sport in general. Uh, so all of them help football. Uh, mm-hmm. Sports like tennis and sports like golf, uh, sports like basketball do take a lot of time. There's such fine skill to those types of sports. You it really does help to start at a very young age and to do it a lot. But mm-hmm. football it's a different sport where it's really not a fine skilled sport until you get to the highest level. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a lot of uh, just brute, brute strength and power and, you know, who has the best tailback, uh, uh, you know, aspect of the whole game. And so I think young kids playing football actually does not really help them become a great, you know, high school football player or a college football player or pro player. But, I will say for like say a quarterback eight where there's a certain skill going on here, a finite skill, those seven on seven tournaments and, and throwing sessions and all those things that helps them uh, become a better thrower, more accurate thrower, just like it helps a basketball player to shoot a lot. Uh, you know, so those things do help, but to actually play football from the, uh, the full tackle, full on football at a young level to me, um, I'd rather have kids be playing basketball and baseball and doing other things that didn't have all that contact. Mm-hmm. And I think that's becoming a more and more common attitude. And I know there's sort of a stereotype that there aren't a lot of Jewish football players out there. And I think a lot of it is that sort of our families and our culture doesn't really like physical danger all that much. 
Yeah, you know, I, everyone has a different uh, uh, way to see it. I, I, I think also for me, um, you know, my parents weren't into the physical aspect uh, of sports per se. They weren't big sports fanatics. But, you know, we did have three boys. I had two older brothers uh, in my family. And that's what we did on in, in that countryside in, in that area uh, out on the 10 acres. And so we played sports. Um, mm-hmm. But football or boxing or those physical type of sports were really not my parents' mentality. They were a little bit more pacifist. So we loved playing tennis. It was a great family sport for us. Obviously, the boys played a lot of basketball. Uh, you know, but, but football was different. And my, but my, when my dad met my mom, my mom wasn't really into sports a ton. Because actually, when she was growing up, she couldn't play a uh, high school sports. Uh, just back in that era, I'm graduating high school in 1965, sure. she only could do cheerleading and golf. Mm-hmm. But she did always like sports. She had a brother and a dad who were into wrestling. And so there was a, uh, a physical mentality to playing with my brothers, too, is, you know, learning how to wrestle from my grandfather. So I think that helped me probably physically separate from my dad, who taught me how to play tennis and golf, right? Mm-hmm. And so luckily, I had a pair to who came from both. Uh, uh, I, I, very lucky I probably had non-Jewish uh, family members in my family to, to, to really enjoy the physical aspects of sports. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's very, very funny. Uh, and so you get to the NFL, you're playing, you know, you're playing quarterback, Maybe this is a loaded question, but number 18, was that on purpose? No, number 18 was given to me my freshman year in college. I didn't like it at all. In high school, I was number four, and I really wanted number four, but they gave it to a, a tailback who was a, a recruit, big recruit from New York. So he wore number four, and I was stuck with 18. Well, he lasted for <laughs> about two years, and then he transferred. And when that happened, I asked for number four again, and then they gave it to a, 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 another player another running back or something like that. So it kept going. It happened two or three times. It kept going to these other players were coming in. And so I just stuck with my 18 and, uh, and I was aware that for the most part of my career. And I, well, I think that's sort of, I know me personally, that endears you to a lot of Jewish sports fans, as you probably know, 18 is a very holy number in Judaism. And to see a Jewish athlete wearing 18, it gets a lot of us excited. Yeah, no, I, I wish uh, I, I wish I had uh, w- w- could have said that I totally picked that out and totally controlled that, but that number was given to me, and uh, you know, the, after I had about three years, I was like, you know, uh, I, I like this number. I like that not everybody has this number, and I, and I know it's a it, it's a great number, and I think it's become a, a real popular number. You know, Peyton Manning really probably made eighteen, right. uh, you know, really popular. So it's becoming you know where you where you see a random T-shirt for a gap or something like that and it's 18 on there that number definitely has become a little bit more uh, uh popular over the course of the last few years mm-hmm. so as a as a as a jewish athlete and someone i think you know with a pretty recognizably jewish last name uh were there times in your career ever where where jewish fans reached out or, or you got a you know feeling from the jewish community that hey he's one of our guys you know uh i i think you know the whole idea behind this podcast is that jews love to congregate around uh around some of our heroes especially you know in athletics as much as anything else yeah well you know again grew up in that small town with parents and and we weren't uh uh i can't say and i and this is pretty public that i wasn't a practicing uh jewish person growing up it wasn't really a part my dad would talk about and tell stories and we would you know sort of quasi celebrate the holidays or acknowledge them and maybe talk about them 
Uh, my dad was very much a history, you know, buff. Um, but, you know, they had sort of separated themselves, and my dad had sort of separated themselves from religion. Again, you know, part of the 60s, 70s sort of rebellious uh, mm-hmm. nature. But we always look at it as part of our, um, of who we are. It's my ancestry. It's, you know, half my blood. It's, um, it's just a part of who I am. Uh, um, you know, no different than like my ancestors were from, you know, somewhere in Europe uh, on my mom's side. It's, you know, it's, and it's very important to me because it's a, it's very unique. And, uh, uh, and it, I think it's special. I think my dad always trained, uh, tr- uh, taught us that it's, it is something special that's about us, that, that's different than what we saw in my hometown. And so, um, right. it, it was, it was, it was just sort of, it, so when I got to the NFL, it wasn't big at Iowa State, obviously, still in Iowa, wasn't mm-hmm. thing, but it's really, when I, it's really when I got traded to the Miami Dolphins. Right. Where I really understood what you're talking about. Because Jay well, Fiedler yeah, was, sure. their, Miami was the, their starting you know, quarterback. Right. And, and, and obviously Miami has a large Jewish population in South Florida in general, and a lot of people coming down and go back and forth from the, from the East Coast and New York. Uh, and so at that moment, and I think being teammates with Jay Fiedler, I really understood uh, uh, I guess, uh, how important, how I was acting, how I was playing, how I, uh, I guess as a, a little bit of a hero to people who looked up to me, uh, as being, you know, Jewish and, and a part of their, uh, their culture and part of their religion. And you mentioned teammates with Jay Fiedler. Did the two of you ever talk about it? Oh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, it was, it was funny sometimes because he would say something to me and, and, you know, Jay grew up in New York in a very traditional Jewish family, I did not. So I didn't right. know all the details and all the celebrations and this. And, and, you know, I would say something like, you know, what are you doing tonight? Oh, he's, he's got something going on. And I, and I would look at, he'd look at me like, you don't know what that is, do you? And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> and so we had a great relationship, um, you know, with the whole thing. And, and we also, it's funny, we had actually a, a Catholic sort of priest to that, uh, uh, worked for the team as well. And he was around, of course, Jay and I would always joke around that he only came around when the off season started because that's when lunch was free at the facility. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was a great time to sort of have that with Jay and, and different teammates. And, 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 you know, and I saw how, I think I also saw how Jay treated his responsibility as a professional athlete growing up within that, uh, you know, having that religion. And he knew how important he was to, you know, people that he grew up around and the people that looked up to him because he was, you know, a kid one day looking up to great Jewish athletes as well. When, when you were a kid, were there any Jewish athletes you looked up to? I mentioned to you earlier that when we ask a lot of people, you know, what Jewish athletes did you look up? I think the age of, you know, I'm 30, so people who are roughly my age, a lot of us looked up to you. So is there anyone that you looked up to? Hmm. You know, that's a good question. Um, but, you know, I think, I think, uh, Koufax is just sort of a general sort of go-to be all because, you know, when I was young, there weren't a lot of super famous Jewish athletes. Again, from a small town, we mostly watched college sports and a little bit of pro sports, uh, you know, and things like that. Uh, right. and you know, I, I remember, I remember, um, Mark Spitz, you know, sure. there, that, you know, when I, when I was young, he was the great Olympic uh, swimmer. And I knew that he was Jewish at that time. Um, so, but, you know, I, 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 I can't really say there were anyone really specific that I really thought of who I was idolizing because, again, from my small town, it was just sort of 
uh, um, a long ways, I guess, from from my mind. Right. I think Spitz is a really good example because he's both, I mean, he was Jewish and he was very famous and kind of outspoken about it, but he was also this all-American, like, strapping, mustachioed hero. Yeah, and the Olympics is something different, right? Right. The, the, the Olympics is uh, uh, something that's a mix. You know, you're representing your country, but, you know, for somebody like him, also representing a religion. Um, and so I, I thought that, you know, I think that's a little bit uh, even adds to it, the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Sage, you, uh, you know, had a very, by NFL standards, quite a long career. I mean, 12 years in the league where I think the average career for any player is around three or four years. And, uh, you know, you were someone who started some games here and there, but for the most part, you were a backup in your career is there is there something that uh you know you think that helped you stay stick around in the nfl as a backup quarterback uh and is there a way that you're you were able to contribute in that regard uh you know for for a decade plus career i think putting my ego aside which which athletes sometimes have a hard time doing and sort of having the the mentality of I, I'm in the NFL. Mm-hmm. I'm the third string quarterback. I'm the second string, whatever I am. Um, this could end tomorrow. And my, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to last as long as possible. So I have to play well. I have to know all the things I, you know, I have to you know, be very coachable, but I want to be one of those people that, you know, it's easy to work with. Uh, right. And, you know, that, you know, that makes sense. And, and, you know, I, like haven't made it to the had older brothers, but okay, I'm not the starter. It's not going to help me in the short or long term if I act like I should be the starter. I'll be off this, you know, this football team fast. So sort of like understanding my role was probably huge in it. That you know, if you're a backup quarterback, man, be the absolute best teammate you can possibly be. Be be competitive as you can possibly be, but you know, uh, you know, don't. Uh, it's more be be uh, seen and not heard, I used to say. You know, mm-hmm. not, the coaches and, and everyone should just see you working your tail off and being a good teammate and and co- being competitive and things like that. Uh, and, you know, so I, I think I just took that mentality rather than like we're always constantly, you know, why I should be playing or I should be being paid more or I should be something else. You're, you know, it just sort of, you know, put your nose down and work really, really hard and try to be as likable as possible. That's uh, that's a, I mean, that's a really good perspective and sort of an experienced perspective, I think. Um, and I'm glad to hear that it helped you, you know, extend the longevity of your career. Being a team player is really important uh, and understand people's roles and various teams or in life, you know, whether you're a parent or you're a son or you're a whatever it might be, like, what is your role in this situation? And, you know, sometimes my role is I, I pay for dinner because that's my role. Sometimes my role is, uh, I'm, you know, since I was good at sports, I play very sports with my kids. So I can help them get good at get at those things. And we all have our different roles uh, in life. And I just always try to play my role. And you sort of, you know, you're always trying to work. You're always trying to play the best you possibly can. But like, what is my role in this uh, uh, facility in this on this franchise that's going to help us get to the playoffs and get to the Super Bowl and and whatever it might be? And coaches all come back and everyone's happy and I. They like me and I stay around longer. That was always my mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so, well, I was just going to say, Sage, uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about uh, one particular 
famous moment of your career uh, back in 2008 when you were with the Houston Texans. Uh, you took off a little bit on a bootleg and, and did what I think is referred to as the Sage Rosenfeld helicopter, uh, where you tried to get over three three defenders and left up into the air, unfortunately mm-hmm. fumbled the ball and returned for a touchdown. But uh, can you, can you, talk, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, I hope it's not a sore subject or anything to bring up, but it's a, it's an amazing clip that I think lived on, that will live on forever as a, as you know, part of the internet or part of football history. Yeah, I guess so. I, you know, a lot of people call it the Rosencopter, which <laughs> oh, the Rosencopter. Actually, that's great. Uh, I think it's great. Um, you know, I don't have much, uh, you know, regret or shame um, about that play. Um, I decided to go for it. It didn't work out. You know, being the, you know, I call it the highest and lowest point of my career. Um, you know what? I think if you watch the clip, it shows it shows tremendous effort because you you had three guys coming right at you, and typically a quarterback or off well, quarterback is going to slide, but you you made every effort to get the first down. Well, so you guys got to realize again, like I grew up in the country, I grew up with two older brothers. Like trying to win <laughs> takes a lot of grit and and sacrifice to try to beat my brothers, you know. And, and I used to wrestle when I was a kid, so I was never really scared of. Of contact, I like to protect myself and not have too much contact. But um, um, I didn't see it that well. And so anyway, when, you, when you're a third string guy, or when you're the back of quarterback in college, like you'll do anything to try to be, to try to move up or whatever, right? That's so a preseason right. game. I wasn't sliding. I wanted to earn the respect of my teammates and my coaches. Like the stage of go for it, you know. And, mm-hmm. and I played sometimes, maybe a little bit reckless, but I always, I always figured. I'd always rather be the guy going forward than the guy, you know, sliding all the time uh, on, you know. So um, I went for it. You know, it was a split-second decision, and I saw the defender come off of the receiver, come up to guard me, um, or come up to tackle me, and it was a, he was a small cornerback. I think his name was Marlon Jackson of the Colts. And I saw, like, he was sort of coming in low, so I thought I'd just jump over him, and maybe I would, I would – would land up near the first down marker. I think it was like a, a third and five or third and six or something like that. And uh, I did not see Dwight. I think it was, uh, might have been Dwight Freeney, or I, I can't remember who the two D linemen were for the Colts coming to my right. So I did not see them. Mm-hmm. So it became this massive explosion, Rosencopter, fumble, return for a touchdown, loss of gameplay that uh, I guess will forever live in infamy. It sounds well, like you I, remember I, it pretty vividly. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, again, you know, of course, I, I, you know, looking back, oh, I should have just slid with a punt. They would have been down to the, you know, five-yard line, the 10-yard line, and we could hold them, and game's over, and easy peasy, let's go home. But I think I just had a mentality of, you know, when you're a, sort of an underdog, somebody comes from a small town, somebody go to a, a college that wasn't any good, and then, you know, help make them good, rebuild that thing, and then go to the NFL and just try to make it your mentality always has to be uh, uh, go for it, go for it, go for it, and, and not be scared to go for it. And I went for it and it didn't work out. Well, I think that's a great mentality to it. You know, it, it really shows the, the grit that went into that and, and just trying to make the play, trying to get the extra yards and, and get the first down. I, I think that's, the, that's probably the mentality that, allowed you to have the career that you did, you know, sticking around and, uh, and having the long NFL career that you did. Yeah, I think so. Football's a tough sport. you got to have sure. grit to play. And, and you know, it's, it's hard for those who played maybe middle school football, or high school football, or even college football. Like, you know how hard it is. The workouts are hard. The practices are hot. and It's not fun. Football practice really is not fun. 
Um, it's extremely hard. It's uncomfortable. It's physical. It hurts. And um, you have to have some grit to you. And if you haven't played in the NFL for a long time, man, you got to have some physical and mental toughness uh, because it is a, is a definitely a physically tough sport. Mm-hmm. And you got to get up and go to work every day. And work is hard. Yeah, and yeah. But, but the work is both mental and it's physical. I mean, long meetings, watching a lot of film, trying to learn and diagnose the game, trying to take care of your body. The you know lifting is you know putting three hundred pounds in your back or or four hundred pounds and and squatting. That's not fun. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and right, it's just uh, it's a lot of physical work. It's also a lot of mental work, and of course, then there's the whole aspect of just the general pressure and those types of things. But uh, you know, I'm 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 happy I had sports, and and they're not the, the end all be all, but uh, I think it taught me a lot of lessons. So, Sage, so, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about you know since you've retired, what you've been up to, or, or what's keeping you busy these days? Yeah, so I've got three kids. My son's 18, a daughter 15, and a daughter 10. Uh, we're in Omaha, Nebraska, currently, you know, sort of quarantining ourselves sure. basically from the rest of, uh, uh, like a lot of people are doing. Luckily, I do live in the suburbs, so we do have neighborhoods and we can walk around the neighborhoods and really trying to minimize going to any stores, having stuff, you know, delivered. People are still occasionally going to stores and things like that, but uh, that's currently, you know, one of the things I, uh, that's my living situation. Um, but I do some radio shows. Luckily, luckily, my life in some ways hasn't completely changed. I've always, uh, since retiring, basically have worked from home, just sort of managing my life, managing kids, managing uh, the money I made, uh, and then doing a lot of radio shows and podcasts and, and write articles. And I sort of work from home covering the NFL, covering uh, the Minnesota Vikings uh, for the most part. They'll do some Iowa State stuff. They'll call occasional college football games. Uh, I guess they're staying, you know, in the mix uh, there as they got, you know, sort of part-time career. I love that, mm-hmm. I, you know, as I sit here, I'm hanging out in my bed, and uh, and I have a radio show coming up in 27 minutes that I'll do for an hour talking about the Minnesota Vikings and what their situation is going to be and what mm-hmm. the NFL should probably do with this whole situation. So um, I'm very, very fortunate. I'm very lucky. I don't have a ton of injuries. And I've got three healthy kids, and um, you know I'm 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 very concerned about everything that's going on out there in America uh, with 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 this coronavirus, and it's scary. And and I'm just trying to do my part, uh, which is stay at home and try to minimize contact as much as possible. And uh, because you know I've got parents in my 70s, I've got uh, uh, you know a lot of family and friends who have different health issues. I got a girlfriend who's a nurse who is uh, dealing with the situation without the proper equipment. It's a scary time, and I'm just trying to do my part. And right. so, I mean, sorry to get off topic, but now you just brought it up. What's it like in Omaha right now? Is Are the streets empty? Are people still going to work? How serious is the city taking the social distancing instruction? I think, uh, I think they're taking it fairly serious. They're not shutting down, but we're also, you know, we are, we are the opposite of density here. So mm-hmm. I think that helps the state in this area. Omaha's a town of about 800,000 people, and it's very much a suburb town. So a lot of people already do live in the suburbs. They can work from home. Uh, uh, you know, they, I think the grocery shows and things are open, but there seems to be you know, not very many people in there, pretty quiet. Um, so I think it's, it's a, 
you know, Nebraskans and, and the Midwest people in general are, are generally rule followers for the most right. part. Uh, and they understand that. They're not rebels. You know, rebels a lot of times live in, say, Florida or, or other places. And, and in Nebraska, Omaha is not. So people are, are, are pretty cognizant, pretty aware. And I think for the most part are at the minimum social distancing if they are out and, you know, having to go to work or having to do jobs that, you know, are, are studied to have to have done right now. Right. Well, uh, we hope you stay safe out there and, uh, you know, do your best to, to not go too stir crazy uh, during the quarantine. I'm sure it's, it's tr- tricky with kids who are, are uh, teenagers who need to be out and about and doing physical things. It is. Playing sports it, it and is. all that. And, and if, I, if I could give any advice, at least my own mental uh, – I guess my own mindset that I think has helped me is my only advice to people is as we sit here and we try to figure out all these and we, and we think about these things that maybe we're missing out on that we're losing the situation. You know, my son's going to miss out on a high school graduation probably. Like they're not going to do that or, right. or this, that, and the other. Um, rather than focusing on them, I, I've been really trying to focus on all the things I do have, that I do have my health. I do have my my family. I can uh, help take care of my, make my house a better place to live and clean out my closets and, and take this time because I do have time. I do have, uh, you know, some money in my bank account. I'm very, very fortunate. And to try to maybe, uh, you know, switch from all the things that are going to be sort of taken from us uh, in the next year or years to come and try to really focus on the things that we do have and really cherish those. That's sure. great advice. And Great advice. Uh, well, thanks again for for joining us, Sage. It's it's been really uh, generous of you to to take take some time out of the the, the busy you know busy days inside these days, um, and join us uh, for our listeners. Uh, Sage, you're 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 a pretty good prolific Twitter user. Uh, our, our listeners can follow you at Sage Rosenfels eighteen, and uh, yeah, continue to to see your takes and and commentary. I, I see you've been commenting stuff about the coronavirus as well. So, well, I will <laughs> say that uh, the only thing I'm going to, uh, the only hot take I will say about the coronavirus is this thing, which um, I try not to uh, come at this. I try not to come at this thing of blaming a certain party or whatever. I do have a serious problem with um, our country's leadership right now. And I just, since I'm a sports person, the way for me to connect it to sports and the type of leadership that I would like to have is the head coaches that I love playing for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the head coaches that, the, you know, the coaches I had or made a great sort of captains of the teams I had uh, and how they acted as leaders. Leadership is so important. We talk about it all the time. We talk about it as a thing you learn in sports and the values that go into what we expect of whether it's Nick Saban or Bill Belichick or Pete Carroll or, or whoever it might be um, at our press conferences and, and how they treat, uh, not always great, but, but how they do treat media people, good and bad, how they treat team, uh, the players good and bad, the opponents good and bad. Uh, we really do nitpick and, ex- and expect a lot from those, uh, from those coaches because their words matter, their words are important. And their words can divide or their words can bring a team together. And I just have a serious issue uh, with this type of leadership because it, just, it would work terribly, terribly, terribly in any sport, 
in any league, in any uh, uh, situation. Um, and, and sports have been my life. And mm-hmm. um, I look at it as whether it's America or the whole world that we are all the same. I think this virus really shows that we are all connected and we all have to find a way to work together. And divisive leadership always takes down the team and always ends up being a dumpster fire. And I, and I wish we had better leadership uh, and leadership that we expect, you know, of our college, uh, you know, basketball coach or football coach or whatever it might be. Well, uh, thanks for sharing. I mean, I, I we're Canadian, so I have to be a little biased here, but I think I can speak for the podcast and a lot of our listeners that we definitely agree with you. Um, it <laughs> yeah. seems like, yeah. it, it seems like I, I, don't mean to be simplify it, but it seems like it's kind of rough going down there, uh, and the leadership yeah, really isn't helping. It's very disappointing, and um, it's very disappointing, and, and hopefully we find our way through it. I, I you know, I, I'm big in following the scientists. You know, sure. follow the scientists. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think I heard Nancy Pelosi say the other day, "Will be a hater, you think she's the greatest." I, I liked her quote when she said, "You know, if you want to pray, pray for the scientists and the doctors." Yeah, mm-hmm. um, because they're the ones who are going to bring us through this, and the nurses, they're the ones who are going to bring us through this, and so um, that's what I'm thinking about uh, right now. No, I think it's it's a very interesting perspective on leadership, and you know, unfortunately, it's not happening on the on the national level, but hopefully, hopefully, the you know, on a state level or local level, it's it's happening in the way that you're talking about, and, and you're getting people who are yeah, you know coordinating the effort properly and my dad listening said to the people with expertise. Yeah, I'm sorry. My dad said to me exactly this morning. He said this is uh, going to be fixed by state and local authorities and and cities and mayors and governors. Uh, it's not going to be fixed at the federal level. Well, that seems mm-hmm. things for sure. Anyways, I guess that's Thank a, 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 a sad note to, to end on, but uh, you know, topical these days. <laughs> Something we always yeah. discuss. But but thanks so much again. We should talk uh, about it. It's been great to to talk to you about this. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks again to Sage Rosenfels for, for joining us. It was very gracious of him to spend time with us. Uh, although, you know, gave time and time is something that we all have a little bit too much of these days, maybe uh, now that we're all self-quarantining. It was a great chat. I sort of regret not asking him. He mentioned there were the Rosenfelds and the Rosenbergs in his <laughs> uh, uh, tiny town. Uh, and I wonder what the Rosenberg children are doing, if any of them wound up to be Rosenfelds or as famous as Rosenfels was. Doesn't seem like any of them made it to the pros. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, we didn't really talk about this, but he he mentioned that uh, he he you know he spent a, a couple of years in Miami with Jay Fiedler, who was the starting quarterback there. And I, I looked into it a bit after the interview, and as far as I can tell, that's the only time there were two Jewish quarterbacks on the same team, which is was pretty amazing. I I, I don't know that it was really uh, you know uh, enshrined anywhere in, in the annals of the history of the football history books at the time that there were two oh. Jewish quarterbacks on the same team. Totally. And I wasn't a big football fan, you know, when I was 10 years old, 15 years old, when they were on the same team sometime between that. But I knew who they were. Right. I knew Sage Rosenfels and, and Jay Fiedler were the Jewish guys. Yeah. And, you know, not surprising that Sage mentioned that, you know, the Jewish athlete he looked up to growing up was uh, Sandy Koufax. I mean, we've heard that from a lot of people here that we've interviewed about, you know, Sandy being the big Jew who they looked up to sports wise. But uh, as you said, you know, he was he was one of the guys who you 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 looked up to, or you know, a lot of, lots of Dolphin fans in the uh, Jewish community. I think probably all over the states and Canada, because so many so many Jews winter in Florida 
that uh, and there's a big <laughs> Jewish community in, in Miami. So I just think that like you know I know lots of people growing up who are Dolphins fans. I think because they went they went to visit their grandparents at Christmas and uh, and, and went to a Dolphins game. So yeah, you know, uh, we we you know we sort of saw the experiment again last year with uh, Josh Rosen, but uh, didn't it go didn't, didn't go so, so well didn't go so great. So we'll have we might have to That's wait another, we, we... another few years for the great Jewish next great Jewish quarterback. Maybe next time we have Sage on if we have him on again or speak to him again, we should ask him for a detailed analysis of Josh Rosen's throwing mechanics. <laughs> Uh, well, talking about football, I mean, there was some big football news that's sort of Jew adjacent. Uh, Tom Brady left the uh, the New England Patriots, where he's been for 20 years, and signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, which leaves... Went from the, the Crafts to the Glazers. Yeah, TB to TB. And yeah, Jewish owners on both sides. And also our uh, our one of our favorite players, Julian Edelman, is is no longer going to have his, his tossing buddy, uh, Tom Brady, throwing it to him. That's true. Uh, same with Nate Ebner, the safety won't be ca- the the defense won't be carried by Tom Brady. Yeah. So it's it's uh, changing changing the world of football. Um, and those very same Tampa Bay Buccaneers have a shot at drafting Jerry Judy. Yeah, one of our sure. uh, our young people to follow. I'd be surprised uh, if they drafted another receiver given their talent uh, the talent they have at that position now. But, it's true, uh, but you can't pass up, especially somebody named Jerry Judy, a, a guy who self-identifies as Jewish because his name sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, in sports, you know, both most of our news that we have to, you know, discuss or recount is is unfortunately about just postponements and all that. And you know, I mean, there's there's been so much going on in the last three or four weeks related to the coronavirus and and its effect on all our lives that uh, sports sort of seems like the the least important concern. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's the thing that we talk about. And I think a lot of, for a lot of people, it's, it's the sort of constant ongoing, uh, thing in their lives that they, they spend a lot of time on. So it's certainly been tough not having it around. Well, it's certainly, we, we tend to cover Jewish sports as sort of our general raison d'etre, yeah. but sort of in the field of medicine, it lends itself to Judaism a lot easier there's a lot more jewish doctors we could be talking about for uh jewish athletes but unfortunately nobody tracks uh, you know how many patients have been intubated correctly today or uh you know how many pills were appropriately uh, uh prescribed so there aren't enough sort of ways to debate who the greatest jewish doctor of all time you know is. what i actually have noticed that uh well two things one is that i think there are some sports writers who have taken on coronavirus as their like ongoing beat because they have nothing to write about at the moment i think so yep. on the first side, that's just like a staffing issue. Like I saw, I think Bruce Arthur um, of the Toronto Star is like, is a coronavirus reporter now. And, you know, just giving daily updates and things like that. So that's the first one. And the second is that there's other sports commentators and just sort of, you know, Twitterati people I follow who are, you know, typically writing about baseball or basketball or whatever it is, who are just like all in on coronavirus statistics. And it's like, it's the same mindset. That's like, they know statistics really well. You know, there's guys who've been running regressions totally. on, on uh, you know uh, weighted on <laughs> weighted on base average and uh, uh, weighted on base percentage and things like that who are now turning their minds to uh, you know epidemiological curves and just sort of like I was about to say if only Bill James had become an epidemiologist maybe uh, uh, we wouldn't necessarily have wins above replacement yeah. but we would have significant uh, uh, advances in epidemiology you know it is an interesting question I mean. Uh, I, I don't begrudge anyone who who spends 
their uh, off hours or their their day job even coming up with novel ways of analyzing sports. I mean, it's like it's my dream. It's I, I love it. I, I it's all I read. You know, what I mean that it's like it's it's something that's so interesting. But at the end of the day, like I think we're seeing to a certain degree with all this that it's like sports matters. It's important. It's a yep. it's a reflection of society in lots of ways. It's it's a very you know uh, entertaining and uh, important physical activity in terms of the way the way we learn skills and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's not life and death for the most part. You know, it is a uh, it is entertainment. It is frivolous. It is fun, and you know, and we love it. I'm not I'm not trying to make a case against sports, but it, it you know it sort of pales in comparison to the stuff that, that we're talking about day to day basis now. Absolutely. So I'm gonna throw one out. You. Sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna give my two greatest Jewish doctors of all time. Oh, okay. This is good. And I don't mean necessarily in terms of the number of sort of just with their overall influence. I don't know if you can call, you know, if we would actually know, I'm sure there is some surgeon, you know, at Cedar Sinai who saved a ton of people. Right. They might be the greatest, you know, physical doctor, but I think in terms of influence, you have two. Okay. And I don't know who's one and two, but you got to start with Freud. Yeah. I think that's a big one. I mean, he invented a whole discipline more or less of, you know, medicine that's like stayed for the last hundred years. That's a, that's a pretty good one. Absolutely. And we don't, we don't necessarily know, you know, how much, uh, we don't necessarily like everyone's heard of Freud. I would say anyone who's got any sort of basic understanding and, and a lot of his stuff has been argued or disproven, but you know, Freud, tell me about your mother, the seat, the importance of dreams and sort of hidden thoughts. That is, that's psychology 101, sure. and, and everybody knows a little bit about that. So he's number sure. one. Okay. Number two, I'm going way back here, Maimonides. Ooh, yeah. Maimonides is a good pick. I mean, you know, lots of application to, to both medical and, and biblical learning. He was. I mean, he was the, the personal doctor to the king of Spain in, yeah. uh, uh, back in the day. Uh, he was a you know, pre preeminent physician of the uh, Almoravid Empire. And, uh, you know, Egyptian and, and Moroccan and Spain, he sort of went all over preaching the sure. Torah to those who he would uh, treat, including the king of Spain. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's an interesting starting point. We might have to think, you know, depending on how much coronavirus uh, and, and, you know, maybe even things in the future affect our, our daily lives. We might have to think about a Jewish medical hall of fame. If one doesn't already exist, to <laughs> start honoring I'm, some people. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll start remembering some, some doctors. I'm sure just, we could remember some doctors I, and, you know, yeah. we could look to see if all the, uh, if anyone has any letters before or after their name and sort of the, the liner notes of the Mishnah, whoever's right. any Mishnah commentary that comes from, you know, Dr. So-and-so or Rabbi so-and-so MD and so on and so forth. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm actually going to Google this, the Jewish doctor hall of fame. <laughs> okay. Good luck exist? with that. I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure something will come up as a hit on that. Um, so the first the first hit was the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. Oh, okay. I mean, the idea of a Hall of Fame, I think, is is usually a sports specific thing. I don't know if there's so many Hall of Fames besides that. I mean, rock and roll is the big one, but even that's like patterned patterned after a baseball Hall of Fame, and it's also yes. like you know not that in, important, I guess. I've never been to it, <laughs> but like, just seems like a like a you know a fun it's more side of a museum, project for you. I would say than a Hall of Fame. It's more of a museum. So, it's more of a museum. Uh -huh. So I found one. There was a medical doctor who unfortunately uh, perished in the Holocaust, who was an Olympic fencing medalist. Okay. Uh, Dr. Oscar Gerde. 
Okay. So he he can be in both halls of fame. The fencing and uh, and Doctor Hall of Fame. And the medicine. Yes. And medicine. Yeah. Okay. Um, In terms of other big, you know, Jewish sports news delay, I think the other big one that we were excited about is the Israel baseball team and the rest of the 2020 Olympics, which have now been officially postponed to 2021. Uh, This decision was made last week by the IOC after a lot of pressure. Canada and Australia, among other countries, uh, decided, you know, had already pulled out and different U.S. uh, sports federations had said they, they were strongly urging Everyone to sort of pull out, you know, it's sort of odd decision by the IOC. I understand they want to wait as long as possible, but not really the best look from their perspective in terms of in terms of waiting as long as they did to cancel the games. When I think it was clear to everyone that these games were not going to happen. Yeah, and it wasn't uh, going to happen. You know, they were supposed to start in four and a half months, and it just seems like really like like I don't feel like we're going to be back to normal. We might be back to normal by August, but it's like. You know, of all the things to do, we're going to do an Olympics now. Between now and then, oh, absolutely, it's 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 extremely unlikely. And I, you know, I think in reflection of the excitement still we have, and and you know, sort of Jew, Jews have a friend of the podcast, a listener, follower, Nick Rickles, member of the 2020, well, formerly 2020 uh, Israeli national baseball team, uh, now calls it uh, now now his Twitter bio describes himself as a 2021 Olympian. Yeah, and that was the angle for us that you know is most concerning. Uh, we were both really excited about the Israel baseball team's potential uh, at this year or what is now next year's Olympics. Uh, as, as listeners will recall, Israel baseball, Israel's baseball team made the Olympics last year in a qualifying tournament uh, last September. For, you know, it made the, baseball, made the Olympics for the first time ever and baseball's back in the Olympics for the first time in many years. A great miracle happened there. Yeah. In the Italian baseball stadium. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some delay and we'll see how the team shakes up or what that might mean in terms of who the roster is. But at the end of the day, there will there will be an Olympics. You know, there will be a 2021 Olympics and Israel will be there uh, on the baseball field and, and elsewhere as well. Yeah, there's too much money and excitement at stake that they can't cancel the Olympics. No. Not in, not in today's world. Yeah, there's too much money involved. I mean, I don't know if the Olympic movement is really worth a damn anymore, but, you know, there's money. There's money involved, certainly. Um, one, of the, one of the other, you know, big things that got canceled that was uh, in throws, one of the first things that got, got canceled was the... Where there's very little money involved, as a matter of fact. Very little money involved. It was the NCAA Division Three uh, men's basketball tournament which we'd been following because uh, Yeshiva University had a, had a buy in the tournament or had a seating in the tournament and had played two games. They won them both. They were through. Yeah. And they were actually, you know, one of the, one of the earlier uh, sporting events that was affected by the coronavirus. Someone who is a student at Yeshiva University, not a team member, uh, had tested positive for coronavirus. And as a result, they played their games in uh, empty gyms for both, both their first two games in an empty gym. Yes, when sort of sports were going on like that. Yeah. It, you know, there was a time where I think we thought that sports were going to happen like that, that they were just going to be, you know, playing basketball in an empty stadium. But it quickly became became uh, apparent that that wasn't going to happen at the professional level or at any level. I mean, since it was so, the spread was so great. But uh, it's worth it to mention as we talk about Yeshiva, the Division Three men's coach of the year was uh, their coach, Elliot Steinman. So oh, that's great. Big, Wow, congratulations big, uh, to him. Congratulations, Mazel Tov, to uh, Elliot from uh, us here at the Manchwarmers. That's great. Um, you know, I think they, you know, they they never lost in the tournament. So, are they a co-champion for the year? I, you know, maybe, I think so. Maybe that's up. For, do they still do like? Do they do AP, AP press, AP polling for 
Division Three. I'm not sure. Like back in the day, before before every uh, every nat, you know, baseball. Or sorry, before basketball and football had had uh, postseason, the the national champion was just like whoever the eight the AP poll picked, right? So maybe we should just go back to that. Yeah. I mean, people talked about you know who the if there's a Division One champion this year. I think the answer is no, there isn't one. You know, not it's just whoever is number one at the end of the year, or whoever we think is number one. There has to be some sort of arbitrary tournament involved. <laughs> Yeshiva was ranked fifteenth. However, right. they were twenty-four and one, and only Swarthmore University, who was twenty-five and zero, had a better record than them. So, wow! I so, assume there's know. no Jews that go to a school called Swarthmore next to St. Thomas and St. John's, who are just below them. Uh, uh, Swarthmore College. I, I, I'm sure there's. It is a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. I'm sure there's uh, some Jews who go there. Okay, that's true. That's true. It's right after uh, St. John's and St. Thomas. Yeah. So it, it's it, a little more Jewish than those. It's always funny to find out that these schools have like 1,500 people. Like, you know, we went to a university that had 25,000 or so. And like every Canadian university is, is like 15,000 plus. Like they're all big, like uh, state school type, type, type schools. But in, the, Absolutely. in America, there's just like, there's like a thousand reputable, you know, uh, 150, 200 year old colleges that have like 1,200 people going to them at any time, at, at any time, and like they produce, <laughs> they've each produced like four Nobel Prize winners or like quarter. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, of course. I went to Swarth. We've been going to Swarthmore for for yeah. generations. Colby and uh, Virginia Wesleyan. It's uh, <laughs> legendary yeah, exactly. in the, the our family. But so a uh, uh, muzzle tough to Elliot. Um, and thanks again to Sage for appearing on our podcast. Uh, that'll just about do it, do it for this uh, quarantine episode of Menchwarmers for you. Yeah, uh, follow us on Twitter at Menchwarmers. Find us on Facebook at the TJN Podcast Network. Uh, you can check out everything we do and more at the Canadian Jewish News website, the CJN. Uh, sorry, the CJNews.com. And uh, or sorry, CJNews.com. That's and right. You can no check doubt. out the other podcasts that are put out by the Canadian Jewish News on that website, and you can download them and our podcast wherever you get wherever you get your podcast. You know your Spotify's or your iTunes or whatever. So thanks for listening, and uh, uh, we know that Larry Tannenbaum is alone at home these days with his family <laughs> quarantined. So Larry, if you're looking to kill some time, we're here for you. Yeah, we're here. You've got nothing going on. We've got nothing going on. There's no sports to watch. So let's commit. Now's, now's as good a time as any. Exactly. Thank you for listening in this trying time.